morning, everybody. Welcome to Springbrook Church at Home. My name is Tom Desmond. I'm the lead pastor here at Springbrook, and I just want to say how grateful I am that you've tuned in and you're checking this out with us this morning. Um, it's my privilege today to open up the Bible with you, and so we're going to do that, and we're going to be in the book of Isaiah. This is the book we've been walking through as a church for a number of months now, and we're going to be in chapters 47 and 48 today, um, mostly focusing on chapter 48. We're just going to do a very quick flyover of 47 today, but um, we'll be in those chapters today. So uh, as you get there with your Bible or your phone or however it is you are going to uh, follow along with us, um, I'll pray for us and then we'll dive in. Okay, so let's pray. Father, thanks for giving us this morning again. We pray that you uh, would meet us here through your word, by your spirit. Lord, we pray for ourselves to have open ears and soft hearts. We pray, Father God, for your grace to just be poured out in our lives through your word today. Um, we need you. We confess that before you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so at some point or another in your life, you have probably encountered a person who either doesn't have faith in Christ or has walked away from the local church. And more often than not, the argument you hear from people in, in those camps, uh, they'll say something like this. They'll say, that Christianity cannot be true because Christians are sinners and hypocrites. And that's an argument you hear all the time from all kinds of people in all kinds of places. That Christianity just can't be true because look at the people that go to church. Look at the Christians. Look at how incredibly hypocritical and sinful they are. And now that's an argument that I've heard many times from many people. And, and it's actually as an argument, it's a logically sound one. The logic is, is solid. Um, and, and that argument actually is somewhat compelling because, and I can say that because I, I've been in the church for 36 years of my life, my basically my entire life, um, I have been following Jesus for over 30 years. Now, very imperfectly, I will add to that, but for, for 30 years plus of my life, I've been following Jesus, and I've been involved in the local church for my entire life. And, and in those 36 years, I have seen a lot of hypocrisy among Christians. I've seen a lot of sin in Christians. I've been personally hurt by Christians. I've experienced the blunt end of Christian criticism. All of that is true. And all of that is undeniable. But at the same time, I've also been a sinner and a hypocrite. I've hurt other Christians. 
I've hurt people who aren't Christians. I've wielded the blunt end of Christian criticism towards others. And, and the list could go on and on and on. And so I fully understand and am even, well, I guess just not compelled by, but I get why people will say, I am just going to throw Christianity out as an option because it can't be true. Because look at all these Christians. I understand that argument. But, he, but here's a better way to look at it. And this is what the text is going to show us, I, I think, pretty clearly today. Um, the better way to look at it is this. Christianity has to be true. And here's why. Because Christians are sinners and hypocrites. And only Jesus would look at us, sinful, hypocritical Christians, and would extend his grace to people like us. That's why I'm in the church. That's why I've given my life to being a pastor and teaching the Bible. That is why, because I, I have been hurt by Christians. I have been hurt by the church. I know most of you probably have your own wounds to carry as well. We, but, but I'm still here, not because I have somehow stopped being a sinner or a hypocrite, but because Jesus would extend his grace to people like me and to the very people who have hurt me and have hurt others. I look at it this way. I look at it as Christianity has to be true because only a loving God as shown to us in the scriptures would pour out his grace on people like me. And, and there's a deeper thing here though as well. We need to understand that the first argument that, that I shared that, that come from people who have been hurt or disenfranchised or have, have seen the, the raw end of Christianity, that the argument that they make that the, or the conclusion that they arrive at because of their experience is an argument that is premised in or based upon a works righteousness view of Christianity. In other words, it's based on a view that says God um, loves us because we're good. Or we must be good for God to love us. That's a faulty premise. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. The argument that I, that I share and that I believe chapter 48 is going to show us is not an argument based on works righteousness, but on grace. Um, in, in other words, that it is because we are failures that God gives us his mercy in Jesus. It's not because we're good that God gives us his grace. It's because we're bad and God gives us his grace. That's what grace is. It's extending undeserved favor on someone. And the key is the undeserved piece of that. He's not extending favor to those who earn it, but to precisely those who do not earn it. And so as we walk through this text today, I want to just 
show you the, the wonderful grace of God in this passage. And, and here's just an overview of the message that we're going to see. It is God speaking to each of us and saying something like this. It is for my own sake, God's sake, that he loves failures and fools. It is for God's sake that he loves a failure and a fool like me. And so it is, it is that message that we're going to see in this. God's commitment to himself as God is his assurance to us. And, and I just want to encourage you that we're going to look at some assurances from his word today. And, and I want to just say, if those assurances do not melt your heart, they don't belong to you. But, but if the assurances that God gives us today through Jesus ignites your heart with a flame of hope, then he has set you apart for himself forever. And we need to be reminded today again of Hebrews 4.16, which tells us that the throne of God is a throne of grace. So here in Isaiah, the prophet is going to show us the way that God rules and overrules our failures to the praise of his glorious grace. So let's dive in. I'm very excited for this passage in front of us today. Um, so chapter 47, we're not going to spend almost any time here, uh, not because it's not important or, or equally God's word, but I, I just really want to spend the bulk of our time in 48. Um, but 47 really deals with God's uh, upcoming humiliation of Babylon. And if, if you remember the context of where we are, God has been speaking through really chapter 39 through this point about uh, the, the upcoming invasion from Babylon into Judah, where they are going to lose their land. They're going to be hauled off as slaves. They're going to have the worst um, period of their lives. They're going to go through such uncertainty. And yet God is assuring them that he's still at work, that he's got a plan, and that one day Babylon will be thrown down. And so that's what chapter 47 deals with. And you can read that. It's in your Bible. You're you're welcome to take a look at that today if you'd like to do that. Um, but the primary focus of chapter 47 is on God's judgment on Babylon for their uh, unrepentant, unchanging, and, and prideful hearts towards God. But what's fascinating is that in chapter 48, God switches away from the nation of Babylon and begins to, to hone in on the sins of his own people. Like, it's obvious to anyone who reads the Bible that Babylon was filled with sinful, rebellious people. Right? That's, that's not even an argument that we could have. Like, clearly, people who were in rebellion against God. That, that's, what it, that's what it is. That's obvious. But what's incredible to me is that so much of the Bible, and in fact, I would argue most of the Bible, is not pointing fingers at those outside of covenant with God, but to the people who are in covenant with God. That God's primary concern is with his own people. 
that the Bible is not meant for us to use to point fingers at others, but rather to hold up to ourselves like a mirror and show us where we fail and show us where we need to repent and show us where we need to come back to Jesus. It's not a mistake that the vast majority of what Jesus spoke about was not directed at people outside of his covenant people, but to them. It's not a mistake that the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John and all the rest who are writing letters to the church are consistently calling the church to change and come back to Jesus. They are consistent. The message is consistent. It's not about being primarily concerned with those who are out here, but what's going on in here. It's not a mistake that the book of Revelation in the first three chapters, before it gets to any of the crazy apocalyptic visions that John sees, the first three chapters are Jesus speaking to his churches. And what does he say to them? Over and over again, he speaks to seven churches. And each of those churches, he says, this is what I'm seeing in you that needs to be repented of. There's no mistake that God does that, that he's focused on his own people. And so we need to hear this. We need to see this. And so um, as we get into chapter 48, that's where we're going to start reading. Um, this is what we're going to see. We're going to see God turn his attention away from Babylon to Israel, to his own people to the people who are in covenant with him. And we'll see a lot of uh, overlap here between God's covenant people in, in Old Testament Israel and, and the church and, and where we are as well. So let's look at this. Verse one says, Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the Lord of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. Now, I want to point out here that the first word in this passage is the word here. And it's a key word. It's a, it's, an, it's a word we're going to hear and see actually over and over again uh, 10 times in this passage, in this chapter alone. It's a Hebrew verb. means to hear or to listen. It's used 10 times in this chapter. And, and the reason for that is, is clear. It's from, we, hear, we know it from Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. God wants us to hear. And it is, it is really only in hearing from God that we can find our escape from the prison of self into the freedom of truth. Our part is to listen. God is speaking. So as we look at verse 1 and 2, we, we see the, uh, the call that God has for his, his sinful people. And the, the key in this um, is, is in the end of verse one, where he's speaking to uh, 
the people who have confessed the God of Israel, but not in truth or right or righteousness. In other words, the people of, of Israel had called on the name of the Lord, but, but not in the way he told them to. <laughs> not in righteousness, not in truth. These are, he's, he's pointing out their rebellion. Even though they've made some of the right moves and they've done some of the right things, they have failed to truly do what God has called them to do. And so we may believe, right? We may believe, but we, we don't often do so in truth and righteousness. We are often all too quick to turn from the true God to our false gods and our idols. And that's really what Israel had done. They began to put their trust in the gods of the nations around them. And God is saying, listen, you may have called upon me. You may have confessed the God of Israel, but you are not doing so in truth and righteousness. And so there's there's the setup for what we're going to be talking about, right? Like how... Basically, the question that we're going to answer or see today is this. How, how does God deal with people who claim to love him but live in such hypocrisy? How, how, do, we, how do we see that? So look at verse 3 through 5. Let's read it. It says, The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate. Your neck is an iron sinew. Your forehead is brass. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. Here's what God is saying. He's, he's pointing out their stubbornness their thick-headedness. He, he's pointing out how hard-headed and hard-hearted they are towards him and yet is reminding them, even as he's confronting them, that he is not defeated when they don't live and when we don't live by real faith. God has it figured out. He's not upstairs somewhere wringing his hands going, oh my goodness, look at these sinful people. What am I going to do with them? How am I going to deal with this? How am I going to, like, that's how you and I may respond to, to people that we're interacting with who are rebellious or foolish. If we have children and we're raising our children and they're doing things that we just don't understand why they're doing them, we may wring our hands and go, oh my goodness, how am I going to get my kid out of this or, or help my kid through this? Or, right? we, we may struggle with that, but God does not. God says he looks back at the former things. Right? That's what he said. The former things I declared of old. And he shows us that because he knows all things front to back, that every step of the way, he has been faithful to his promises. He says it in the end of verse 5. He says he did all these things that he declared lest you should say, my idol did them. He's saying to his people, I didn't want you to think for a second that your fake God 
pulled this off. So I told you what I was going to do so that when it happened, you knew it was me. And so God is consistently faithful to his promises. And catch this here. He's faithful to his promises in spite of us, not because of us. <laughs> we are the hard-headed, stubborn people that he describes. The ones who have, who have been obstinate, whose neck is iron sinew, right? Like if your neck was made of iron, you're not moving at one bit. You're just stuck in that spot. Right? And, and then he says that your forehead is brass. You're like, you know, you're done. So you just don't, you don't get it, right? And, and so here's, here's what he's saying. I'm not faithful because you've been faithful. I'm faithful because I've been faithful. That's what he's saying. It's amazing. And, and so it's not because of us that he's been faithful. It's in spite of us, in spite of us being hard-headed and stubborn, God has not given up on you or me. So is it true that Christians are stubborn, hard-headed people at times? Absolutely. Is it true that we're hypocritical and sinful? Yes. Yes, it is. But this is the thing. We're not called to throw away the church because the Christians in the church are, are imperfect people. You should know walking into any church that the people you're going to meet are going to be imperfect, sinful, and they're going to fail you. It's the truth. I'm going to fail you as your pastor. I am not Jesus. And I will never be Jesus. And so I will fail you at some point if I haven't already, and I'm sure I have. But we're not called to throw each other away because of their failures. We're called to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, who is the perfect one, who is the one who we should be looking at and adoring. And I'm reminded of something that Charles Spurgeon, a pastor from the 1800s in London, once said. He, he talked about the people who are constantly on the search for a perfect church. And he said, I'll, I'll paraphrase it, but he said essentially this, that there is no perfect church. And if I was to find one, the moment I joined it, it would cease to be perfect. Right? Why? Because every single person who walks into the church is a flawed and failed person. There is no perfect church. There are no perfect people except for Jesus. And we got to keep our eyes on him. So God tells us first here that he is faithful to his promises, even though we are unfaithful. Secondly, let's look at verse uh, 6 through 8. Here's what it says. It says, You have heard, now see all this, and you will, and will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today you have never heard of them. Lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old your ears have not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth you were called a rebel. All right, so what's God saying in these verses? 
God is, he started looking at the old things and reminding his people like, hey, remember all those things I promised you and how they came true? Now he's turning his attention to new things. Future outpourings of his grace upon us. And what God is saying to his people is this, that he's going to give us just enough knowledge of what is to come that we can trust him, but not enough to ruin us. Do you notice how he, he says this? He says, I, I've, I've told you these new things in verse six and seven. And I've told you them so that you don't go around saying, look, I knew that. I knew that was going to happen. I called it. God's going, no, no, no. You have no idea what you're talking about, but I'm going to give you just enough. And then he says this, in the end of verse 8, he says, For I knew that you would deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. What's he saying? He's saying if we knew everything that was going to happen in the future, we would destroy ourselves with that knowledge, wouldn't we? Like if we knew everything that was going to happen, we would, we would absolutely ruin everything. And so God is saying, look, I'm going to give you just enough. Enough assurances that you can trust me, but not enough that you would deal treacherously with the information. So, so here we're going to keep on going. Let's read the next three verses, 9 through 11. It says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will give, I will not give, excuse me. To another. So this, this short section, these three verses, answers a very important question. In light of the fact that we know we're failures, we know we're fools, we know we've screwed up, we know it. So here's the question. Why does God love us? Why does he put up with us? The answer in this passage is so huge the answer he gives is this it's because of who he is because it's rooted in his very nature he loves us so much and he puts up with so much from us because it's who he is it's not our performance that secures us it's actually our lousy performance that God uses to display his grace. Look at what he says. Verse 9, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. He's saying it's for my sake that I'm, that I'm loving you. It's for my sake that I'm patient with you. It's for my sake that I am working in you. 
He says in verse 10 that he's refined us, that he's using the, the things in our lives that have been wrong to refine us like the furnace of affliction. And then he says this, he, he doubles down again in verse 11. He says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. My glory I will not give to another. He says, it is for my sake, for my name, for my fame, for my glory that I, that I care for you, that I love you. It's not in your performance. It is not in your goodness, nor is it in mine that God looks at us and says, I love you. He looks at you and he looks at me and he says, I love you because of who he is, because it is his nature and character to love. And so that should steady our hearts. And, it's, and listen, this is not an excuse for us to be as wicked as we possibly can. It is actually meant to be the fuel, the, the firewood in the furnace of righteousness. The reason that we pursue what is right is because we know we have a God that loves us. And it is in his approval of us, despite our failures, that motivates us to be people who pursue him. It is not the other way around. It's not that we do performance so that we earn what is uh, what is in God, but it's so that it's because we've been approved of and already been accepted by him that we then pursue what is right. We have this amazing reminder. So there in the first 11 verses, we see the reality of God's people being imperfect people. And yet God's grace being poured out on those imperfect people in their imperfections. And so that's why we, we cling to Jesus and why we should stay committed to the local church. It's not because the local church is perfect, but because Jesus is perfect and righteous and has done all these things for our sake. And so that's true for us as individuals, but that's just as true for the people around you who may irritate you and frustrate you and make you wonder sometimes whether any of this is real. So that's the first half of this passage. The, the second half is going to answer this question. So how does God work in us? We know that God approves of us and loves us for his own sake for his name, for his glory. But how does God use these things to, to actually mature us and grow us, right? Like Christians should be on a trajectory of growth. It's called sanctification. It We're all on different paths, right? We're all on different levels of sanctification, but we are we're all a work in progress. And yet we're all, even as painfully slow as it may seem to us, we're all on a path of growth towards Christ's likeness. That It says that he, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. That what God starts in us, he will finish in us, and there is a gradual progression of growth 
in the middle between those two things. So the, the second half of this begins to kind of answer that question. How does God work in us? <clears throat> and he gives us four assurances of his work in us through these verses. So we'll take those quickly, one at a time. Verse 12 and 13 says, Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens when I called to them. They stand forth together. Here's the first assurance of how God works in us. It's this, that God will never fail to be God. God is assuring us in this, that he will never fail to be who he is. This is wonderful news because in all of our fickleness, in all of our failures, in all of our ups and downs, God is steady. He is consistent. He is always God. He will always be God. He's saying, listen to this. I am he, I am the first and I am the last. In other words, I am eternally from beginning to end, I'm God. I'm the one who created all this. I'm the one who brought it all into motion. I'm the one who's done all this. You can rest in me. That's the first assurance he gives us of how he works in our lives, that he will always be God. He will never fail to be God. Second, look at verse 14 through 16. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. Now, listen, who is him? We got to talk about this for just a second. The Lord loves him. Him refers to King Cyrus, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. King Cyrus was the Persian king who God would use to bring down the Babylonians and set the people of Israel free. So he's saying, assemble together. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves Cyrus. Cyrus shall perform his purpose on Babylon and his army shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me and hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Here, here's what these verses are telling us. Here's the assurance that we're given. It is that it is even in our unwelcome experiences that Jesus is present behind what is obvious to us. Let me say it this way. Um, Israel is being told that they are going to be hauled off into captivity and that God is going to raise up a very unlikely hero to rescue them, a, a nether pagan God. <laughs> right? You got one pagan God who has captured them, king of Babylon. You've got another pagan God that God's going to use to, to free them. Very unlikely, very unpleasant, very unwelcomed experience to be hauled out of your land and into captivity and, and this 
And yet what God is saying to them is this, that even in all of the unwelcome experiences, Jesus is present behind what is obvious. In other words, we don't see the big picture. We don't see the whole story. Especially when we're in the midst of an unpleasant experience, we're, we don't, it's hard to see the forest for the trees, right? It's hard to step back and go, okay, here's the whole forest when we just got, you know, giant trees in front of our face. But what we're assured of here is that Jesus is behind it all. He's doing something in it all. And listen, we're living, this is timely because we're living in very unpleasant times. We are not, no one is welcoming what is happening right now in our culture. In fact, there is 0% of me that wants to be in this room by myself, preaching to my iPhone and posting this to YouTube. I don't want to be doing any of this. I'd much rather be in a room with you in person, face to face. Man, there's no part of me that likes this. None. But here's the thing. Jesus is doing something. And I don't even know what it is. That's the frustrating part. I have no idea, but I have assurance that he is. I know he is because he's always done things in unpleasant times. He has always used what is difficult to bring about his greater purposes. And so I'm resting in that. I'm trusting in that. And I, I don't know. We're, you know, I talk to a lot of pastors from all over the world and we're all in the same boat. Listen, this is not just a Wisconsin problem. It's not just a U.S. problem. It's a world problem. And every pastor I know, I know pastors in South America, in Africa, in Europe, in Australia, all over the world. I know pastors and every one of us are in the same boat. Every one of us have had to shift and adjust and change what we do to reach people for the gospel. We've all had to. It is frustrating and is difficult. And yet what is clear even though we don't know the fullness of all this, we know that Jesus is going to use this in some way to accomplish his purposes. And I just have to keep clinging to that truth. And I have to keep clinging to what, what we're going to read for our benediction today, which you've heard me read many, many times if you've been a part of our church for a while. About once a month, we, we get to this one as our benediction from Ephesians 3 which says that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. God is able to do more than we can imagine. Think about that. Think about your wildest imagination and God is able to top it. So, so we, have to, we have to cling to this. God is at work in us because he's using these unwelcome things to show us Jesus and to show us that Jesus is at work behind the scenes. So number one, God will never fail to be God. Number two, even in unwelcome experiences, Jesus is behind what is obvious. Number three, verse 17. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Here's the third assurance in this text. In turbulent times, God is teaching us 
and he is leading us forward. The Lord leads us like a shepherd. He takes us to the places we should go. Like Psalm 23 reminds us, he leads us to green pastures. He leads us beside quiet waters. It is in the turbulent times of life that God is teaching us and leading us forward. It is often in our stubbornness and our refusal to listen to him that gets us into the wrong places. But God is faithful to continuously lead us to where he wants us to be. And, and not just in good times, but particularly in turbulent times. One more, 18 through 21. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. Here's our fourth assurance from this passage. God is our good and faithful Savior wherever and whenever he leads. We need to hear this. God is saying in verse 17 and 18, well, really 17 through 19, he's telling us like, hey, I wish you had listened to my commandments. I wish that you had done what I said because then you would be living in righteousness. In other words, what God is saying is, I wish you had never sinned. Right? And all of us wish that we had never sinned. We, we all wish we could go back and slap that apple or whatever out of Eve's hand, right? We all wish that. That's not the world we live in. And it is into this broken world that God leads us as a good and faithful Savior to provide for us. He, he talks about here in verse 20 and 21, he talks about this Old Testament story of the people of Israel in the wilderness and how God provided water from a rock Listen, the reason that they were in the wilderness and dying of thirst to begin with was because of their stubbornness and their sin. God made them stay in the desert because of their disobedience. He was refining them over 40 years. 40 years in the wilderness. Man, we can't even fathom that. God used the 40 years of wandering to show his people that he would provide, that he would be faithful and good to them. And he did miraculous things like bring water from a rock. If you were to take a rock and break it in half, you know what you'd find inside? Not water, rock, right? That's what rock is. And so God does this miraculous thing to split a rock open and gush out water. And, and listen, he's, 
bringing out his grace to us like the water from that rock. It's in our wandering and it's in our, in our struggles that God shows his goodness and faithfulness no matter where he takes us. He's a good savior. All right, one more verse. And this verse, verse 22, is, it's the deal breaker. It, it's, it, it's the crux of all of this. Look at what it says. It says, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. So here it is. What God is telling us is this, that the only ultimate wickedness is the refusal of God's grace. Because the refusal of God's grace denies the very nature of who God is. And so God is saying there is no peace for the wicked. He's not... He's not making threats. He's just stating the inevitable result of rejecting God. He's telling his people, listen, all these things are true, but you have to receive my grace. And if you refuse it, having no peace will be the result of that. So here's the question. Will you Let God be God. Will you see him through faith bring forth grace in Christ for you? Will you step over the line from resistance to trust, from refusal to listening, from delaying to following? You are welcomed to him. And and we're all in need of him. Will you come before him? Will you trust him? Will you listen to him? Will you follow him? I hope you will. I hope you have. I hope you'll continue to. And with all that said, let me let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your great grace to us. Lord, we confess to you that we are so foolish and we are such failures. And yet we've been reminded in your word of the goodness of Jesus Christ, who has poured out his blood on a cross so that we would be brought in and forgiven and set free. Lord, help us to rest in that today. And we pray that you would get all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to take a few moments today to sing together, to lift our voices and praise from your home. And we're going to transition into that time now and just want to encourage you and remind you that you are, even though we're apart from each other, you are able uh, to give tithes and offerings as well. And so if, you've, um, if you have the opportunity, if you have the means uh, and you would like to support the ministry of our church, you can do that in a couple ways. You can either send a check in the mail to the church office or, or you can uh, give online by going to springbrookanago.org slash give. Uh, you may have to refresh the page to see the little portal to give, but but you can do that uh, online today as well. So we just encourage you to do that if you're able and if you're willing. Uh, and that's 
we're just letting you know that that's an option. But for, for right now, let's go ahead and transition uh, to our worship team and, and sing some songs in praise to God this morning. 